your Bibles, turn in them to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have your Bibles, the scripture we'll be looking at is in your bulletin. Um, it's in the back cover um, above the outline, but we're actually going to start a little bit before. We're going to look really at verses 20 to 22 today, but we're going to start our reading in verse 14, which is uh, on the page facing that page. It starts in verse 14 there. We're going to read the whole thing so we can catch the context. So this is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 22. Friends, listen. This is God's Word. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is God's Word. So this series is really about trying to be a blessing to San Diego. Um, San Diego needs a growing number of people who, in their response to opposition, can see and display Jesus. That's what our cities need. That's what our workplaces need. It's what our homes need. It's what our communities and neighborhoods need. Um, Opposition and conflict are part of everyone's lives. Um, Among people that disagree with us, there's conflict and opposition. Uh, But also in our relationships, in the workplace, in the home, with our friends and our family. And it's conviction combined with sacrificial love that will bring healing and reconciliation in the midst of opposition. Okay, it's people who are confident and gracious in their response to opposition that will surprise others. They surprise others and they can bring healing into a situation. And in this series, we're learning how. And so here's what we've seen so far. Right? In responding to opposition, we saw first the need for discernment. Right? This is where we need to stop and think, what is the real issue here? Like, what are we really arguing about? And we saw that we're not supposed to argue over things that don't matter, but focus on discussing the real issues that are lying underneath the conflict. And then last week we saw repentance is key, that change starts with you. And Bill reminded us that we need to be quick to own what you've done in a conflict and then turn from that conduct back to Jesus so that he would forgive and then seek to be reconciled for what you've done first. Now, there's two key words in verses 20 and 21 that Bill preached on last week 
um, they really, I want to highlight them as we look at verse 22 today, um, and I want you to circle these two words because they're the foundation for what we're going to see in our verse today. Um, And so the first word I want you to circle is the word vessels in verse 20. The word vessels. This is a word that's used for tools or kitchen accessories. Um, And what the vessels were made of in this passage, it shows whether they were honorable or dishonorable, right? There's vessels that are made of gold and silver, and then there are vessels made of wood and clay. And and the picture here is... um, the picture here is like this, right? This is a silver serving plate, right? Silver serving plate. Paul says that this is a vessel for honorable use, right? You serve people with it. It's got a devoted purpose that's special, right? And so Paul would think about a silver serving plate, and he would call that honorable, right? So this is the honorable vessel, And so what he's asking here is he's saying to Timothy and he's saying to us, do you want to be an honorable vessel? Do you want to be a fine silver serving plate? Or do you want to be a vessel of dishonor? Would you like to be a toilet? (laughs) And that's what he's saying, right? There are some vessels for honor and some vessels for dishonorable things. Right? This is what the passage is talking about. Right? There are some there for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. And the question that he's asking is, which do you want to be? He's asking Timothy this question, and in turn, God the Spirit is asking us, which do you want to be? Now, the, the other word I want you to see is in verse 21. And it's the word useful. It's the word useful. It says, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So circle the word useful. Now when I thought about useful tools in my house, I thought about my laptop. I mean, there's lots of things you can do, but I don't think any tool is more useful than a laptop, right? This laptop helps me to learn. It helps me to work. It helps me to communicate both with colleagues and friends and family. It keeps me informed about what's going on in my 1,000 closest friends' lives. Um, it's also a tool for entertainment, right? It's just a lot of uses. It's, very, it's a very useful item, right? So Paul would say, you want to be useful, useful to the master. And then I went out into my garage and I got this pile of junk, really. Kind of sad to say this stuff's in my garage. Um, You can't even tell what this is because it's not really worth noticing, but this is like stuff that's either broken or it's isolated, right? It's not where it's supposed to be um, or it's missing other pieces. Um, These are things that just, they're they're not useful, right? These things are not useful. Now, I'm going to put these things over here. Not The toilet is a useful tool, right? It's not unuseful, but you get the picture, right? We're just trying to see what Paul is saying here um, to Timothy. And so again, um, really he's asking with this second verse 21, he's saying, do you want to be useful to God or not? Right? Do you ever feel that way? Do you feel useful in your life today? If I were to ask you, do you feel useful to God? How would you respond? Do you feel useful? Do you feel the sense of confidence that yes, God uses me uh, as part of his mission in the world. 
He uses me in the lives of other people. He uses me to support the church. He uses me to support the people in San Diego. Um, Or do you feel kind of frustrated because you feel like you don't think you're useful to God? You feel like God can't use you. Well, if you want to know how to go from being dishonorable to honorable, um, if you want to know how to go from being unuseful to useful, this passage shows us just how to do that. Okay, and in verse 21, as Bill preached last week, he said that the key to usefulness and honor begins with repentance. Right? That's what we saw last week. It begins with us repenting of the things that we've already done. Right? Recognizing, okay, yes, I have blown it. I haven't been useful. I've been pretty dishonorable in my life. Right? And so it's repenting. It's turning from those, thin, from those sins and moving in a new direction. But the question is, once we've repented, what do we do going forward? Right? If, if repentance is confessing and moving on from the things in the past, what do you do this week? What do you do in the future to be useful and to be honorable? Verse 22 answers this exact question by telling us this. And this is the blank, the first blank in your handout. What it says, it says, flee what is fleeting and pursue what's permanent. That's what verse 22 tells us. It says, flee what's fleeting and pursue what's permanent. Flee what's fleeting, pursue what's permanent. This is what we're going to see today as we look at this verse. And we're going to see it in three points. The first point is to flee what's fleeting. This is what Paul says in verse 22. He says, so flee youthful passions. Flee youthful passions. So he says that there are strong desires that can exist in our hearts. There are things that can move us. There are passions. These are strong desires Um, And he says, by describing them as youthful, he says that it's possible for adults to have and be driven by passions and desires that are actually characteristic of children. Anybody relate here? (laughs) Is, Is it possible that there might be in you a strong desire that's more characteristic of a child than an adult? I mean, I think all of us can relate to this. I think when we think about kids, there are bad habits that kids develop, but are characteristic of them being young. And what Paul is telling Timothy in this verse, he's saying, look, these passions, they're childish. And because of what Jesus has done, you're not a child anymore. And so I see this not as like a condemnation of Timothy, but this is an encouragement. Timothy is saying, look, or Paul is saying to Timothy, look, because of what Jesus has done, you're not a child anymore. He said, like, this is good news. This is part of the good news that we are not children anymore. And remember that what Paul is telling Timothy, what he's teaching Timothy and us, is how to respond to opposition. There are false teachers who are in, uh, who are in and among the community of the, of the Christians uh, in that first century. And these are false teachers who are trying to discredit Timothy. They're trying to undermine his authority and try to set themselves up so they can take over the church. Um, They are arguing over minutiae in the Bible. They are making things up. And and again, they're trying to discredit Timothy so they can be in power. And so, what are the youthful passions that Timothy is supposed to flee? Well, as I was thinking about this and having some children of my own, I thought, wait, wait, I think I get this. 
Because um, in my experience, not just with my kids, but with a lot of kids, kids always want to be right. Right? Kids always want to be right. Sometimes they're like a dog that sinks its teeth into something it will not let go. And it doesn't matter how much or how relevant the conversation is or what the issue is, they just want to be right. And they will continue to correct each other, right? And sometimes the correct... You know, like when, the, when you... T- stop, look, stop arguing. Okay, yes, Daddy. But then it's a really... You know, I mean, they just... Kids want to be right, right? That's one of the things. They want to have their own way. And kids want to argue over things that don't really matter, right? Now, Paul has told Timothy already. We've seen this in verse 14. He says... Charge them before God not to quarrel about, good, uh, about words. Does no good. In verse 16, he says, avoid irreverent babble. Um, that's what he shouldn't be doing. And what verse 22 tells us, um, if verses 14 and 16 say what not to do, verse 22 tells him why. Why not to do it. And it's because, look, these things are childish. They're childish passions. And I think, in my experience, this is so often what characterizes discussions about both like religion, politics, economics, right? Folks, um, and, the, and the problem is that the folks who have the most public voice about politics, who have the most public voice about economics, these are people who are so driven by a need to make their opposition look stupid, to make it look like anybody with a brain would agree with them, Right? The, the most public figures who do this train us to be childish. Okay? When I think and listen to both Rush Limbaugh and Bill Moyer, just as two examples of people that are on opposite sides of the spectrum in so many different ways, they are both, I think, incredibly childish in the way that they communicate. Okay? I'm not saying, I'm not evaluating the like the, 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 um, the substance or the data that they bring forward to make their points. But what I'm saying is that both of them are characteristically making fun of their opponents. Both of them don't have any respect for the people that disagree with them. And what they're doing is childish. Um, the bummer is that these are, like, that's the way to make money today. You know, if you actually follow <laughs> the principles that the gospel would lay out, the principles of understanding, principles of communicating the way you're, the person who disagrees with you might communicate. If you do that, no one's going to listen to you. <laughs> it's not exciting. What most people want is they want to be told, man, you're right and they're just dumb. And so this is what happens. This is what happens on talk radio. This is what happens every single time there is an election, whether it's citywide, whether it's statewide, whether it's national. Every time this happens, and it's frustrating. It's childish. Okay? It's childish. Um, and so Paul is saying, look, flee from these things. Flee from these things because Jesus has made it so that you are not a child anymore. And so what I like about this is by calling these things useful passions, Paul's acknowledging that these are real feelings and emotions. Right? He's not saying like this isn't hard. Right? These are strong desires that we have. We all want to be right. Um, but he's saying these are passions, feelings, and emotions that we need to bring under control. What we don't often remember 
is that these things actually keep you from your main purpose. Okay? These things keep you from your main purpose. And your, which, what is your purpose? Well, it's to show and display Jesus. Right? It's to show Jesus with how you act. And it's to share Jesus with what you say. Right? That's the purpose of discussion and of responding to opposition. So even when someone is in conflict with you, even when someone opposes you, your mission is to show and to share Jesus. But the way that Paul, like these, when, when, we, when we give into these youthful passions, when we are driven by them, these things actually destroy us and our witness. Right? You might be right. That's the thing. You might be right, and yet when you walk away from the conversation, the person you were talking to is farther away from Jesus than when they started. And so not only does it destroy your mission, but it destroys you. Remember Bill's illustration last week? It was so powerful that one of the ways the Romans would execute people was they would tie a dead corpse to their back and like arms and back and legs. And so you'd literally be walking around with a decaying, rotting corpse on your back until that decay and that rot began to infect your body. And you would die this slow, painful, excruciating, disgusting, infected death. That's exactly what we look like and what happens to us when we give in to the childish, youthful passions of always wanting to be right. What ends up happening is that we become dishonorable and useless to the master. This is you not sitting on the toilet. This is you being a toilet. If you struggle with this, I want you to, I want you to picture yourself right now doing this. Like doing what Paul says not to do. Okay? Picture the last time you acted this way. Maybe it was with a family member. Maybe it was with a friend. Maybe it was with, in the workplace. I want you to picture yourself acting in this way. Right? And what Paul tells you to do, Paul tells you he wants you to have a sense of, of what you're like when you act this way. And Paul's advice, his command is really simple. Run. Run. Put as much distance between you and that person that you act like as you possibly can. That's what he's saying here. He's saying flee, right? Flee youthful passions. There's lots of ways to illustrate this. Um, I thought Genesis 39 would be a great picture of what fleeing actually looks like. Um, This is the story of Joseph, who is in Potiphar's house. And he is the steward. He is sort of second in command because God has blessed him and he's been faithful in his work. And God has given him more and more authority and Potiphar's given him more and more authority. Well, Potiphar's wife has a wandering eye. And Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph and she begins to seduce him and to try to seduce him. And so, but this is what Joseph does in Genesis 39, 11 and 12. It says, but one day when he, Joseph, went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. She, Potiphar's wife, caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me! That's in the Hebrew. (laughs) But, what did he do? He left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. 
Not the best translation. I mean, she grabbed onto his cloak and he ran out of his clothing. So who knows if he was wearing undergarments? He probably was. But, um, so, but he ran. He ran so fast that she didn't have time to let go. Right? He saw the, he saw the temptation. He saw the problem. He knew that this, that she, what she wanted because of all the other, and he ran. He just, he ran. This is what Paul is telling us to do. Paul is saying, flee youthful passions. Flee youthful passions. Run away from that person that you're like when you act this way. Run away. Run away. Because again, remember, you're not just running from youthful passions. You are running away from becoming a toilet. so good that Paul uses this vessel for dishonor, right? I mean, this is in the text. I didn't make this up. I didn't make this up. So, okay, so, um, and you also have to remember, too, flee what's fleeting. Look, all of the being right stuff, all of the, all of the attitude, all of the arrogance that goes along with it, that is fleeting. It will not make you happy. I guarantee you that if somebody said, hey, you know what, you're right, I was wrong, I'm really sorry, I believe what you believe now. That would make you happy for maybe like a day. And then pretty soon you're going to want to do it to somebody else. And the other people are not going to be so willing to, to, to convert. I mean, it is fleeting. Youthful passions will not make you happy. Right? It does not, when you engage at that level, in those kinds of, when you respond to opposition in that way, it doesn't do anybody any good. Not you, not them. And it's fleeting. It's fleeting. So flee what's fleeting. Point two, Paul then says, pursue what's permanent. He says, flee youthful passions, verse 22, and pursue these things. Right? Pursue. And so what does pursue mean? Well, this means now um, you're running away from this old self. Right? And you are running after something. You are chasing it. You are pursuing it. You are tracking it wherever it goes, wherever it look, whatever it looks like, you're going there. Right? If, um, if, the right thing, um, if the right thing is, uh, is to respond in a certain way, then you run after that. Um, if it looks a certain way at home, then you run after that. I mean, it's, it's this idea of, of, of having it fixed in your mind, um, who you want to be. And we're going to talk about what the details are that Paul has. But the, the point is just, this is something that you have to pursue. Okay? You have to pursue this. You need to pursue this new life. You need to pursue Jesus with all of your heart, right? It's a pursuit. It's not something that you can get just by sitting down, okay? If you make no effort to grow in this area, then you will not change. You will continue to live a life that's fleeting. You will continue to live. If you do nothing, if you don't pursue, then there is an insurmountable tractor beam that pulls you closer and closer and closer to being dishonorable and unuseful. Okay, you have to understand that. If you don't pursue Jesus, you will gravitate to dishonor. Okay, and so it is so important uh, to pursue this. It's your new self. Okay, this is who you are in Christ. Okay, this is who God has made you to be. This is who you can become. 
This is the person um, that you are. And so Paul is saying, practice being this person. Practice being new. Let's talk about this. He says, he gives us four things. He says righteousness. He says pursue righteousness. Okay, the word righteousness, this is just, it means being like Jesus. It means doing the right thing. And so it involves ethics. It involves integrity. In responding to opposition, it's blending grace and truth with other people, right? It's understanding and discerning what the real issues are and talking about the real issues, not the minutia and the stuff that's just sort of a smokescreen. Um, righteousness is the life that we all owe to God in response for what he's done for us, right? We don't have to earn anything with God. Grace is free. Salvation is a gift. But in light of the fact that God has saved us, righteousness is the life that we owe back to him. God has forgiven you. He has adopted you into his family. God has set his love upon you from before the foundation of the world. Like before anything was even created, God chose to set his love on you. And because of that, because of that, we want to be useful. We want to be honorable to him. And so righteousness is just how the Bible describes a life that has been loved by God and a life that shares his love with others. So that's what righteousness is. He says pursue righteousness. Right? He says pursue faith. Faith, this, this reminds you that the righteousness that you have, it comes from Jesus, right? We saying, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness, right? Our faith links us to Jesus. Um, our faith reminds us that, that we can't be good enough on our own, and the good news is we don't have to be, right? The good news is that Jesus has come and lived the perfect life, and by faith, when we put our faith in him, God gives us his righteousness, Right? And so faith reminds us that our righteousness comes from Jesus. We see it in him. And by faith, we know that if it's in him, it's in us. Um, Nathan has been reading Ephesians. That's what he's doing in his Bible, in his Bible reading. And he and I talk about it um, periodically so that we can uh, just talk through it, make sure we're understanding it, and we're trying to grow together. Um, and, uh, and it's interesting because he was reading these two verses and uh, um, in Ephesians 4, verses 17 and 18, says this, says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And so I asked Nathan um, when he reads, so how did you see Jesus? And then how can you display Jesus? And, uh, and this is what he said. It was awesome because he said this. He said, he said, you know what? If God tells us not to live this way, then I know he gives us the strength to not live this way. That's faith in Jesus. That's faith in the gospel. That's a gospel promise and it's true. And so when Nathan reads the commands, he realizes that God gives him the strength from Jesus to keep the commands. <laughs> and then he said this, if God asks me to blow something up, then God gives me the dynamite to do it. It's like, that's exactly it. That's exactly right. Do you know that? Do you know that God doesn't ask us to do anything that he doesn't give us the power to do? 
When you read the commands in Scripture, I know sometimes it's easy to read the commands and think, man, I just fall so short. Um, do you ever feel that way? Where, you, where all you see is like, well, this is what it says, but I'm way down here, and I just can't do it. Well, the gospel actually teaches you that the commands are reflections of the power of God at work in you. Okay, so Jesus did die for your sins, but then he also comes and he lives in you to give you his power and his strength. God gives you the dynamite that you need to, <laughs> to blow up whatever he's asking you to blow up. Um, and so, so Paul says, pursue righteousness, pursue faith, right? Pursuing faith means growing in your understanding of what has God promised me? What has God given us in the gospel? And you need to take hold of those things and believe them and live as though they're true. Because when you live as though they're true, you will find that they become true in your life. Okay? Then Paul says, pursue love. Love. And I really am thankful that Paul says this because it's, I mean, it's not just doing right, right? It's not just being righteous, but it's about loving other people. Right? How many times do we get into an argument or we're in a conflict or we're responding to opposition and we know we're right and we said what was technically right, but we didn't love? And this reminds us that in our pursuit of righteousness, in our pursuit of faith, we can't forget love. That even in opposition, our pursuit is love. Our pursuit is not just to be right, but to try to reconcile the relationship. And then peace. Peace. We want to pursue peace. And, and, and this isn't a peace, please hear me, this isn't a peace that just acts like nothing's wrong. Okay? This is a peace that puts what's wrong on the table and says, look, I really want to discuss this. It's really important for us to be able to talk about these things together. Okay? This isn't sweeping the differences under the rug and acting like they're not there, and then you have this sort of surfacey relationship that really just acts, and it's just a lie. Um, but this is, this is God's shalom. This is the full-orbed peace that God intends for all the world. Right? It's what characterized the beginning when God made the heavens and the earth. People had perfect peace with God. Perfect peace with God. Perfect peace with each other. Perfect peace with themselves and perfect peace with the world. Paul says you want to pursue that kind of shalom even in the midst of opposition. You want to remember that what's key here is the relationship. What's key is love. What's key is, again, righteousness and, and asking God by faith to help you be the person who can respond in the right way so that you can bring about God's perfect peace. Because these are the things that will actually last forever. Okay? We want to pursue these things because they are permanent. Actually, one of these things is not permanent. Right? One of these four things is not permanent. Which one is it? Faith, right? Righteousness is permanent, right? If we, because forever and ever and eternity, we're going to be perfectly righteous with God and with each other in the new heavens and the new earth, right? Love is also permanent. Love never ends. 1 Corinthians 13 says that. Love never ends. Peace, right? Peace is going to continue to increase as we pursue it throughout eternity. But faith, 
Faith is one of those things that when Jesus comes back, we're not going to need anymore. We're not going to need it anymore. Why? Because we're going to see him. You don't have to have faith in what's right in front of your eyes. Right? And so, but with these other three things, these things are permanent. These things are permanent things that begin now and will last forever. And so you want to pursue these things because by doing that, by doing that, you will begin to live now in part the way that God will have you live perfectly in the future. And that's exciting. So flee what's fleeting. Pursue what's permanent. Last point. Don't go alone. Okay? As you flee from what's dishonorable, as you pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, don't go alone. Okay? The one thing in the beginning, when God made the heavens and the earth, the one thing that he said wasn't good, he said it is not good that man should be alone. It is not good. It's not good for us to be alone. We all have blind spots. We all need people in our lives to, uh, to show us those things so that we can grow. Um, but frankly, we, just, we, we need each other. We cannot live the Christian life. We cannot flee youthful passions by ourselves. We cannot pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace in any length of time by ourselves. I mean, you can try, right? And you have tried, right? You know those times when you say, okay, I'm really going to change this time. I'm really going to stop doing this, or I'm really going to start doing this. And you do it for a week, right? You do it for maybe a week and a half, maybe 10 days, maybe two weeks, maybe a month. But then eventually... If you're by yourself, it just dries up. And you can't do it alone. Um, in thinking about Joseph back in Genesis, um, Lainey and I, for our 19th anniversary this week, we went to see Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? And um, they kind of just sort of take the Bible story and sort of scrape off the top layer and sort of tell this musical story. And the music's great, um, but it doesn't, some of the points, oh, it's like, oh, you missed it. But, you know, what are you going to do? The book's always better than the movie. <clears throat> but there was this moment that I thought was so great. Um, this is when Joseph is in jail. He is depressed and he is lost. And he is, he's just dejected by himself in his prison cell. And then all of a sudden, people begin to, like, sing to him. And they begin to encourage him. And what turned him around, like, so he's sort of like the music is going, but what actually, like, got him up and looking around and actually turned his heart were these lyrics. They said, don't give up, Joseph. Fight till you drop. We've read the book, and you come out on top. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, that's kind of cheating, right? Not really. But I mean, but... But that's what turned Joseph. And so and we'll talk just for a second about what actually turned him and how that applies to us. But, but the key was that Joseph didn't change by himself. Joseph needed the encouragement. He needed somebody else in his life to say, you know what, like you're in the middle of a story. And I need to remind you of the end. 
Like, that's what he needed. He needed someone to say, look, Joseph, this isn't the end of the story. I've read the end, and you will come out on top. And how many of you need to hear that today? <laughs> right? And when we're in the middle of it, right? When we're in the middle of opposition, when we're in the middle of suffering, when we feel like the world is crashing down or we just feel overwhelmed, we need someone to come and to say, and just to remind us, because if you've been around the church for any length of time, you know how it ends, right? But for some reason, even though we know how it ends and we know that things are going to get wildly, ecstatically, amazingly better for us, we forget. We forget, and we need other people. We need others in our lives to remind us of how the story ends. You're not alone, even when you're alone, because Jesus is always with you. He's made a promise. He knows exactly what it's like to be alone, because he was forsaken by God on the cross. And he endured that so that you could know with perfect confidence that you are never alone. Because Jesus experienced complete abandonment by God, you will never experience that because he took that for you. And because of that, he is always with you. And he's coming back. He is coming back. And, and the best way I know how to explain this, at least the way that moves my heart, is that I can guarantee you all that in a thousand years, you will have spent 950 of those years somewhere else. And it's going to be good. It's going to be good. And so whether you got 50 years, whether you have 60, whether you have 70 years left, right, you are going to spend eternity in a world that has been made perfect, in a perfect relationship with God, with perfect reconciliation and communion with others, where you can finally love yourself the way God loves you. I mean, this is what's in store. I've read the book, and you come out on top. <laughs> right? You come out on top. And sometimes, this is all we need. We just need someone to remind us. But the purpose here, the, the point here is that you can't do this alone. Because this is what Paul says. He says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Right? It's along with those. So Paul doesn't think Timothy can do this on his own. Right? Paul knows Timothy can't do it on his own. When Timothy was with Paul, things were great. We never read anything negative about Timothy when he was with Paul, but when he's on his own. When he's on his own, this is when he begins to fold and crumble. And so Paul says, pursue these things. Run away from this. Pursue this with those who call on the Lord. And so we're not just talking about friendship. We're not just talking about friendship, we're talking about fellowship. This is the Christian term for people spending time encouraging each other to grow closer to God. We all need this. We desperately need this. I love the way Paul says this. He says, along with those who call on the Lord. The Bible says, anyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. If you cry out to Jesus, if you turn to Jesus, 
and you put your faith in him and say, Jesus, because of your death and resurrection, I believe that God will forgive my sins and I'm committed to following you. When you call on the Lord that way, you will be saved. The Bible says, confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. You will be saved. And so that's what it means to call on the Lord from a pure heart. <laughs> this is great because the pure heart doesn't come from you. The pure heart comes from God. This is God's gift to you when you call on the Lord. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But something amazing happens. You ever notice that when you're with your Christian friends, there's just something different about you? Um, the cynic and the devil will say, oh, that just means you're a hypocrite because you're one way with them and you're some way else when, when you're not around. I think that what the gospel says is that's God telling you, like, it's good for you to be with other people who are encouraging your faith. You desperately need to be with other people who are encouraging your faith. God will, has purified your heart by faith in Jesus. And sometimes it's just us being together that brings more of that out. Okay, and so now we're back to our life groups. I mean, one of the best ways to do what Paul is saying here, to flee youthful passions and to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, is to do it in a life group. Is to join a life group. Man, I can't tell you how transformative it is to have people in your life where you are spending time talking about your spiritual life. Um, I mean, I feel like just about every week I get to see the light come on for people. As people begin to understand the Bible for the first time. As people who begin to read the Bible for the first time. As people, oh man, like when they come, you come together, you talk about faith, you encourage each other with the gospel, and as you leave, you think, wow, I feel lighter than when I sat down. We can't do this alone, and we're not supposed to do this alone. And so, if you're not in a life group, get in one. If you have a really good excuse, you can come talk to me, and maybe I'll approve your excuse for not being in a life group. Maybe. Maybe. But if you can't be in a life group, then make sure that you are getting together with other Christians in your life on a regular basis to talk about how you're doing spiritually. I mean, in a sense, this is what discipleship is about. And as Timothy has left Paul's presence and floundered, Paul's writing this to get Timothy back in that game, back into community. He's saying, Timothy, you have to pursue this intentional community, and that's true for all of us. No matter how mature you are, you have to be, you got to be doing this along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Um, and if you're here, for those of you who are here and you're not Christians at this point, you know, one of the best ways to learn what it means to be a Christian is to jump into a life group, right? To just listen to the conversations, to hear people praying, to hear people talking about their faith. Because again, what happens is, what happens is that you come into closer contact and you come into regular contact with life that is permanent, right? This is life as God intended, Right? And this is life that's going to characterize the rest of eternity. And so Paul says to us, why not start now? Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you so much for saving us. And for saving us not 
not just to make us happy, but you've saved us to be part of your family. You've saved us and brought us together in a family so that we can leave what is dishonorable, we can leave what is unuseful, and become vessels of honor. Jesus, I just I picture your work in us. It makes us the kind of people who can serve your grace to others. Um, it makes us people who have experienced your love and so can love others. And Jesus, we confess that so often we don't pursue this kind of community intentionally. So often we just neglect it or we think, well, if we can get to it, and we never do. And so we want to repent. We want to repent of living our lives on our own and being isolated. And Jesus, I pray that you would lead each one of us into meaningful relationships where our spiritual life will be catalyzed, where we'll be encouraged. Jesus, help us to flee youthful passions and to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Help us to pursue it with others. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.